The title of this message this morning is Growing God's Way Day by Day. Growing God's Way Day by Day. I'm not what I might be. I'm not what I ought to be. I'm not what I wish to be. I'm not what I hope to be. But I thank God I'm not what I once was. And I can say with the great apostle, by the grace of God, I am what I am. Those words come from John Newton, who famously penned the beloved hymn, Amazing Grace. And Newton's words bring out both a dissatisfaction of where one is and also a thankfulness for not being where one, where one used to be. It's a recognition to continue on, to pr- keep pressing forward, to not give up. And it's also an acknowledgement that God has done a great work. And that's this morning's sermon in a nutshell. We're going to see Paul's prayer for the Colossian saints' spiritual growth. We're going to be reminded that God has a plan and a purpose for everything. In fact, it's critical that we understand what that plan is because if we don't know what the plan is, how are we supposed to live out that plan in our lives? Moreover, we want to be confident. We want to live confident that we're walking on the path that God has set out for us to walk on. We want to have assurance that the way we're living is the way God intends for us to live. And we want to be convinced that everything we do is for the Lord and it's really what He wants us to do and that we're not just doing what we want for Him. In other words, it must be our aim, it must be our goal to know God's will so that we can walk in it. Our aim should be to know God's will so that we can walk in it. Our life motto ought to be, not my will be done, but yours, Lord. God calls us to grow and mature as believers, and he calls us to do it his way, day by day. And something we should be praying all the time for ourselves and for our children and for our loved ones is that we would grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We must not forget that we were created for a purpose, and that's to worship and glorify God and Jesus Christ. And we need to understand that salvation isn't the end goal. It's just the beginning of a new life that we can live out for Christ. So because of that, we shouldn't rest satisfied in salvation. We shouldn't rest satisfied in salvation. We should be compelled with an ongoing, consuming interest in the things of God. And those things shouldn't be set aside throughout the entirety of our earthly life. To discover all the depths of who God is and what he wants us to do should be our primary pursuit. And that begs the question, what's God's way of growing day by day? How can we bring the most honor and glory to God? And Paul's prayer this morning will instruct us. We'll see that it involves being filled with the knowledge of his will. It involves being, living a life that's pleasing to Christ, living a life that's in reliance on, to God's power, and it involves a heart of thanksgiving to God. Paul's prayer for the Colossian saints will speak to all four of those areas, and it's these four necessities of a believer's life that I want us to consider. We'll cover the first two this week, and Lord willing, the, the last two next week. So here's the outline. If you're taking notes, two necessities in a believer's life. Number one, being filled with the knowledge of God's will, verse 9. And number two, living to please Christ, verse 10. So the first necessity is found in verse 9. Paul says, And so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. So as a way of reminder, Paul has never visited this young church before, but he gives thanks to God for them because the gospel has come to them from Epaphras 
and they have embraced the gospel of Jesus Christ. We saw that in verses 3 to 8. In verses 9 to 14, Paul is going to move from thanksgiving to prayer. He's going to move from thanksgiving to prayer. Look down at verse 9. From the day news about the Colossians reached Paul's ears in prison, he hasn't ceased to pray for them. He doesn't know them, and he's never met them. But that doesn't stop Paul from praying for them. The Colossian saints were permanently on Paul's prayer list. And he regularly prayed for their progress in the faith. And that reminds us that life, that journey, the journey of the Christian life isn't a sprint, but it's a marathon. And if you're familiar with running a long race, you understand that your ankles and your feet start aching. At certain points during the race, you may feel like giving up, like you can't go on. And just when you feel like you're catching your breath, you see a hill up ahead. And isn't that how life is like? Isn't that how our life is like? It's not a leveled sprint. There are hills to climb, aches to experience, temptations and trials that make us want to stop. We don't just breeze through life on our way to heaven. And if anyone understood this, it was Paul understood this. He wrote this very letter locked up and chained to a guard 24 hours a day. He was no stranger to afflictions. And he wants the Colossians saints to know that they must continue on the course that they've already begun. And this is especially true because they're living with a threat of false teachers and false teaching seeking to diminish the person and work of Jesus Christ. And what we need to understand is that these false teachers weren't trying to replace Christ, but were promoting things alongside of Christ. In other words, they were saying that Christ was prominent, but he wasn't preeminent. And therefore, it was necessary to look elsewhere. It was necessary to look to them to be truly spiritual. The false teachers, they were like crooked salesmen who offered a special full knowledge not possessed by others. And if you bought into their new kind of teaching, you would gain a superior knowledge of spiritual things. But the thing is, as Paul will tell us, their system was bankrupt. Although it had a semblance of spirituality, in actuality it had no real spiritual value. And Paul didn't want these dear saints to be scammed. He writes in Colossians chapter 2, verse 10, reminding them that, they have, that they've been filled in him. They've been filled in Christ. In other words, they're complete in Christ. And if, if I can say it this way, Christ comes with everything included. Nothing else is needed. And I know this doesn't happen often, but have you ever had the experience of someone paying a bill for you? Have you ever had the experience of someone taking care of a bill for you? Surprisingly, it's happened to me not just one time, but a couple of times while I was driving through ordering food from a drive-thru. And I was shocked when I pulled up to the window with money in hand to give to the worker. And the worker looks at me, hands me my food, and tells me, you're good to go. You're good to go. Nothing else is needed. The, the car in front of you paid in full for your food. Now, in that situation, I could have paid and I should have paid for my food, but someone else paid it for me. And likewise, Jesus Christ paid in full the penalty of our sins by taking our sins upon himself. And this we should have paid, but we couldn't pay. But Christ was able to pay being perfect and sinless. Christ made a one-time payment to cover our infinite debt. And because of that, by faith in Christ, those who believe in him receive salvation, forgiveness of sins, abundant life, and eternal life. This is what Paul wants the Colossians to understand. Paul wants them to know that what they've already received through saving faith in Jesus Christ was enough 
They just needed to continue to grow in that. They just needed to continue to mature into the full stature of Christ. They just needed to stay the course. And this isn't just important for the Colossian saints to know. This is also important for us to understand. We need to pay attention to this because when we're born again into the family of God by faith in Jesus Christ, we're born with all that we need for growth and maturity. 1 Peter 1.3 His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. And that's a marvelous truth because that means that we don't lack anything in Christ. And to say it a different way, on our own we're lacking, but in Christ we lack nothing. God supplies every need of ours according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. Philippians 4.19 We have been blessed in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Ephesians 1.3 we're all aware that the Christian life can be a great struggle and be filled with many difficulties. But the glorious thing is that we're fully equipped for everything we're faced with. And we need to take hold. We need to take hold of this truth that Christ is always near. He's never far off and he'll never leave or forsake us. And as we go through throughout our day, we need to embrace the fact that he's with us every step of the way. We can take great comfort in the reality that nothing will separate us from the love of God and that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion on the day of Jesus Christ, Philippians 1.6. Brothers and sisters, we're never alone in the Christian life. We have all things in Christ. So what are the means God has provided for us to grow into spiritual maturity? The first thing Paul prays for is that God may fill us with the knowledge of his will. That God would fill us with the knowledge of his will. Notice in verse 9 it says, filled. That God would fill us. The prayer isn't that we need something new or extra on top of what is already ours in Christ. The prayer is that we may be filled with what's already in our possession. This doesn't mean that we can know everything there is to know about God, but we can grow to know him deeper and closer as he reveals himself in Scripture. And that's exactly where we need to go to, for God to fill us with the knowledge of his will. We go to his his living word. Very simply, if you want to know God's will, look no further than his word. Deuteronomy 29, 29. The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever, that we may do all the words of this law. Let me restate that for us. Everything revealed in God's word belongs to us and is for our instruction. The things not revealed, the secret things, the hidden things, aren't for us to know, and they're not for us to try to figure out. The secret things include all the details in your life that you, you may want to know, but God keeps hidden because he wants you to trust him in those things. And I'm sure you would agree with me that we'd rather know things in advance. We'd rather know things in advance than to have them happen to us with no previous warning. And do you know why that is? Because comfort is important to us. Knowing what's going to happen beforehand provides a bit of comfort because it helps us to plan ahead so that we can avoid discomfort and we can avoid danger. We like to be in the know at all times. We like to understand everything that's going on. And when we have no control of what's happening, when we have no explanation for the, for the things that are happening, when we have no answers, when we can't figure it out, it makes us anxious and fearful and worried. And maybe you see this in your own life. 
Are you someone who can't rest until you've exhausted all the news articles on a certain topic? Are you someone who lays awake at night trying to figure out how, to, how a situation can turn out for the best? Are you someone who has an Im- imagination that runs wild with calculations of all the possible outcomes? Often, we're our, we're our own worst enemies when it comes to this. We worry ourselves sick. We panic with racing thoughts of the unknown. The uncertainty of the future and the endless possibility of outcomes scares and paralyzes us. So how should we respond instead? We need to remind ourselves not to lose control when we're in a situation that's out of our control. We need to remind ourselves not to lose control when we're in a situation that's out of our control. We need to discard the what-ifs and take hold of the even-if. Even if the worst happens, Lord, you're good. Even if I receive terrible news, you are my refuge and helper. Even if my children never come to know you, you're loving. We can put this into practice by running to God, our anchor, who's always in control. And God, we know this, God typically doesn't warn us ahead of time. He usually doesn't give us advance warning in the storms of life. And additionally, his, war, his word is clear that we'll face troubles and difficulties and hardships. And here's a pill that might be hard to swallow. The particular details of our individual suffering aren't always revealed. The particular details of our individual suffering aren't always revealed. And that rocks our world. That shakes us to the core because we recognize that as much as we want to have control, we're not able to control our own lives. We'd much rather walk by sight than by faith. But when we do that, we don't learn to trust God, His goodness, and His promises. Proverbs 3, 5, and 6, Trust in the Lord with all your heart, and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him, and He will make your path straight. Rather than peace fleeing from us, we ought to run to the God of peace, for peace, and then trust Him. We ought to cast our burdens upon the Lord and rest upon Him because He cares for us. We ought to exercise faith and trust God, especially especially when nothing makes sense. This is part of growing God's way day by day. The secret things belong to the Lord alone, and it shouldn't be our endeavor to chase after the secret things of the Lord. However, God does want us to know His will as revealed in His Word. As the saying goes, we need to look to the book We need to look to the book. The prophet Isaiah, he lived in a time not unlike our own. And the people commonly sought answers in all the wrong places. And this is how Isaiah directed his hearers. This is his counsel to the people. Found in chapter 8, verse 20. To the law and to the testimony. To the law and to the testimony. And that's where we need to go. To the law and to the testimony. Paul's pointing out something very important here. Biblical knowledge is necessary. In fact, it's crucial because without it, how could one come to know God's will? This knowledge that Paul speaks about here isn't just a set of beliefs to be believed in. It's more than facts. It's a deep and comprehensive knowledge. It speaks of an experience of an intimate relationship in Colossians chapter 2, verse 3, we learn that all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are hidden in Christ. Paul's talking about head and heart knowledge. For example, it's one thing if I tell London, Theo or Thompson, that I love them. They wouldn't question my words. But it's another thing, indescribably more real, if I pick them up to embrace them in my arms so that they can feel the warmth of my body, they can hear the heartbeat in my chest, and they can feel the protective grip 
of my arms. And that's the difference between intellectual knowledge and biblical experiential knowledge. Paul's praying that the saints at Colossae and us, by extension, be continually filled with the knowledge of God's will. We need to crave, to hunger and thirst to know the God of the Word because we've tasted and seen that He is good. A couple questions we need to ask ourselves. How often do you think about God? How often does He occupy your thoughts? Do you have a God awareness, a God, a God consciousness that swarms your everyday thought, motives, and actions? Brothers and sisters, we can't rest satisfied with what we know. We must heighten our knowledge of the God of the universe. We must have a growing knowledge of the Holy One. And the only way to do that is through the Word of God. Through the Word of God. The verb to fill that we see in verse 9, it carries the idea of being fully equipped. It was used to describe a ship that was ready for a voyage. And in Christ, we have all that we need for the voyage of life. We're fully equipped. Again, chapter 2, verse 10, Colossians. We're complete in Him. John 1, 16. For from His fullness, we have all received. To fill not only means that we're fully equipped, it also means to be controlled by. For example, when we're filled with anger, it means that we're controlled by anger. We're under its controlling influence. To be filled with something then means to be controlled by it. So not only is Paul's prayer that we be fully equipped, but also that we be controlled by the full knowledge of God's will. You can think of it this way. Filled totally or filled exclusively. Filled so full with the knowledge of God's will that there's no room for anything else. No, no holes or gaps or spaces. Filled so full that it's the driving force, the controlling influence and the dominating presence in your life. That's what being filled means. It means to be governed completely by the word of God. When we're filled with this knowledge of God's will, it'll help us to not be foolish. Ephesians 5.17 says, Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. It will help us not to be children in our thinking. 1 Corinthians 14.20 It will help us not to be tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Ephesians 4.14 Being filled with the knowledge of God's will will keep us from spiritual immaturity and guard us from spiritual impurity in doctrine. Our lives ought to be lived through the lens of Scripture. And now the real question is, what's God's will? We know where it's found, the, the Word of God, but what's the will of God? And we like to think, when, when we hear the, the word or the phrase, the will of God, we like to think of the will of God in specific terms or particulars, uh, particular terms such as, is it God's will that I marry this person? Or is it God's will that I take or leave this, this job that I'm in? Or what's God's will for what school I go to? This isn't what Paul is talking about here. The book of Colossians as a whole, and specifically the context of this first chapter, is about the supremacy of Jesus Christ. What Paul has in mind isn't some particular or special direction for one's life, but a deep and abiding understanding of the revelation of Christ and all that he means for the universe and especially for believers. And he's going to expand on that in verses 15 to 20. The knowledge of God's will is more than simply an insight into how God wants you to behave. It's an understanding of God's whole saving purpose in Jesus Christ. Everything revolves around Jesus Christ. And when we understand that, when we understand that, we begin to get an idea of what the will of God is. 
It's all about the glory of Jesus Christ in the gospel. His will is that we would utterly embrace and press into his salvation. Jesus said in John 6, 38, For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. God's will is embodied in the person and work of Jesus Christ. So we need to ask ourselves, what's needed to be filled with the knowledge of God's will day to day? How can we grow in the full knowledge of God's will? Paul says spiritual wisdom and understanding. Spiritual wisdom and understanding. Meet Joe. Joe is a single male who loves to read, study, and meditate on scripture. Joe can recite countless verses and can defend challenging doctrines. You can say that Joe's not lacking any knowledge. One day, he meets a beautiful young lady, and everything about her is perfect, except that she's an unbeliever. Despite what he knows, he decides to pursue this young lady, thinking he'll witness to her and, and win her to Jesus Christ. Joe is a profile of someone who has knowledge but lacks wisdom. He's unable to take his knowledge and skillfully apply it in the right situation. He's unable to take his knowledge and translate it into right practice. On the other hand, meet Jack. Jack's a new believer who just came to saving faith in Jesus Christ. You can say Jack has limited knowledge. And he's at church one day talking with an elder. And during their conversation, the elder finds out that Jack is in a dating relationship with an unbeliever. And he lovingly tells Jack what the Bible says about his situation. Jack goes home, and that night after dinner, he searches the scriptures, and he finds out that the elder was right. The elder wasn't trying to lead him astray, but was actually guiding him on the right path. And then Jack, Jack then takes the appropriate steps and he breaks off that relationship because he wants to honor the Lord. Jack's a profile of someone who has limited knowledge but demonstrates both wisdom and understanding. He showed wisdom by applying the knowledge from God's word and he showed understanding by being able to discern what God desired and required of him. He wasn't trying to figure out what God wanted him to do. He wasn't at a stalemate or a standstill decision in his life. He was informed by the word of God, applied wisdom, and he understood what he needed to do. Notice that both wisdom and understanding are spiritual in nature. It says spiritual wisdom and understanding. That means that through the Holy Spirit, we can have the wisdom and understanding that we need. As we submit to him. Also notice that the knowledge that knowledge was foundational in both the profiles of Jack and Joe. One wasn't lacking knowledge and one was, but the important thing is that knowledge rightly understood is where it starts. Now what you do with that knowledge is another matter, but you have to have the right knowledge to begin with. In other words, if the starting point is off, you'll be off course the rest of the time. This is why Bible intake, being saturated with scripture, is vital for the Christian life. But for some reason, some of us think we can live the Christian life apart from eating and feasting on God's word. You may be sitting here this morning spiritually starving because there's a famine of the word taking place in your life. I encourage you to take action, to, to feast, to eat, to not fail to nourish yourself the way God wants you to nourish yourself. And you might not crave it, and you might not desire it, but you need the bread of life to give you true satisfaction. We all have a responsibility before God to pursue sanctification. Sanctification is greater growth in holiness. This is what the writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews 12, 14. Pursue peace with all men 
and the sanctification without which no one will see the Lord. We need to be continually turning away from sin, resisting the devil, and fleeing from temptation. We need to make every effort to live a holy life according to the word of God. It's been well said, nothing can make us us hungry for scripture more than scripture itself. And bringing it full circle now, the will of God isn't primarily who to marry, what job to take, what house to buy or not to buy, or what school to go to. It's immersing yourself in the vast depths of the ocean of God's word. Because when you're filled with the knowledge of God's will, you'll have the wisdom and understanding you need to conduct yourself in a holy manner. That means that no matter what may come, no matter what situation you find yourself in, no matter what circumstances you're facing, when you're filled with the knowledge of God's will, when your mind and heart are saturated with Jesus Christ, your delight becomes to honor and to glorify him. His will for your life will be at the forefront of your thinking. And it's with that foundation then, with that foundation then when it comes to the small and significant decisions in life, your decisions will be informed by the word of God and made with his glory in mind. So something like who to marry or what job to take won't be a torturing decision. Because if your goal is God's glory, if your aim is to do everything to please Him, if your decision isn't contrary to the clear commands of Scripture, if your decision won't cause you to compromise your faith, and if it's not unlawful, then you have freedom to choose what to do. It doesn't need, you don't need to feel guilty or second-guess yourself. God's will is revealed to us in the pages of Scripture, either explicitly by commands or implicitly through biblical principles that need to be applied by wisdom. And apart from that, trying to figure out God's will will be like trying to find a needle in a haystack. So for us, this is what it looks like. We need to daily and diligently search and meditate on the scriptures. Not primarily to find answers to our questions, but primarily to know the God of the scriptures and Jesus Christ, his beloved son in whom he sent to save sinners. This is eternal life according to Jesus Christ. John seventeen three. Jesus says, this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. As your relationship and knowledge of God's, God grows, decisions and knowing God's will, be, will become clearer to you. This is, again, part of growing God's way day by day. Sometimes we can be so focused on and concerned about the future and the specifics of our lives that we forget, we forget how God wants us to live in our, in our everyday lives. We want God to show us the way while forgetting that the Bible has already revealed to us the way to live. We go searching in books and magazines and blogs and other people while the very thing we're searching for we already have in our possession, namely Jesus Christ and his word. And even more dangerous, I hear of people speaking of seeking visions or looking for signs, or waiting to hear God speak. Brothers and sisters, we ought not to, to fancy ourselves with those things. We have the word of God that's complete and sufficient. God doesn't speak today. He's not giving, what I mean by that is, he's not giving any new revelation. He's already spoken in and through his word. As if you've probably heard before, if you want to hear him speaking, go to where he has already spoken, the word of God. The song, How Firm a Foundation, has these lyrics. How firm a foundation, you saints of the Lord, is laid for your faith in his excellent word. What more can he say 
than to you he has said. What more can he say than to you he has said? God has spoken in his word. So may we dig deeper into God's word so that we'll have greater wisdom and understanding concerning God's will. May we commit ourselves to being men and women of the word. As Isaiah said, to the law and to the testimony. And here's a word of caution for us. We need to beware of filling our heads full of knowledge of the Bible without having God's purpose for that knowledge on the forefront of our thinking. 2 Timothy 3.7, listen to these words. Always learning and never able to arrive at a knowledge of the truth. Scripture teaches that demons also believe and shudder. We have to make sure that our knowledge translates into wiser living. And that's the only legitimate goal in studying God's word. If we have any other goal in mind, we're on a dangerous path. Because the only rightful purpose for gaining knowledge of God's will for, for gaining knowledge of God's word is so that we can be controlled by that knowledge in order that we may conduct our life in a way that's worthy of Jesus Christ. That's, that's the goal. Not simply so that we can have knowledge that will puff us up in the flesh, but so that we'll have knowledge that will build us up in Christ, that will lift us up into the heavenly places where we're seated with him. And this is the second necessity in the believer's life. This leads us right into it. Living to please Christ, verse 10. So as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God. A commentator notes this. Spiritual wisdom and understanding help us to know what's truly important in life from God's perspective. God gives us knowledge to lead us to deeper faith, greater virtue, and more devout service. Paul prays with an understanding that as the Colossian saints are filled with the knowledge of God's will, they'll live and act in such a way that's, a, that's worthy of the holiness of him whom they confess as their Lord. Biblical knowledge isn't just theoretical or intellectual. It's also practical. It's meant to live in the real world not just in our heads. The word walk here, it refers to daily conduct. It refers to the whole of one's life. It means to walk in a way that's consistent with our identification in Christ. It also speaks of conduct and behavior that's suitable, fitting, and living in such a way so as not to bring reproach on the Lord and his gospel. And the word worthy means equal weight. It means equal weight. The idea is that we're to live a life as much like Jesus Christ as we possibly can. That means that the ultimate aim in knowing the will of God is then to live a life that's fully pleasing to him. Not partially pleasing, not when we want to or when we feel like it, rather completely in every area of life, in everything that we do. Fully pleasing means to desire nothing else but pleasing him, honoring him and obeying him. We're to live lives for his pleasure, for his pleasure, not for our own and not for others. This involves obedience and a mentality that, that says, I'll do whatever it takes to please the Lord in all respects, in every respect. Our walk, the whole of our life, should be lived with a view towards pleasing Christ. As a dad with three young children, three young kids, I love the look of their sweet, innocent faces when they look to me, when they watch me to make sure that I see them. Especially London and Theo, They're at an age where they they want me to watch them do everything. They want me to watch them and be excited with them, to smile and to enter into their joy. And they constantly look to me in how they should respond 
or what they should do. If someone, for example, if someone asks them a question, they'll look to me with eyes telling me, letting me know that they want me to provide them the answer. To give you another example, the other day we were at the playground and as kids do, they climb the ladder to get to the top of the play structure. And once they made their way up, successfully, they stopped right in front of the slide. And they called out to me so I could watch them go down the slide. You know, they've experienced the feeling of going down the slide to my applause and my, the celebratory words of joy that I give to them when they go down the slide. And they're seeking that same thing again. And it doesn't matter if there's 10 kids behind them waiting to go down the slide. Until they get my attention, they're not going to go down the slide. What they're doing, in a sense, is seeking my approval, my smile upon them, my pleasure in them. And if I look at them with a smile, it makes a difference to them. They're happy, they're satisfied, they're filled with joy. On the other hand, if I look at them with a frown, it also makes a difference to them. They get sad, and in a sense, again, they live for my pleasure. So the point is, if everyone is smiling at them, but I'm frowning at them, they're affected by that. Likewise, if everyone else is frowning at them, but I'm smiling at them, everything is good for them. It's all good. In a greater way, we need to live for Christ's pleasure. We need to seek first to please Him. And that's part of growing God's way day by day. We're not to seek first to please ourselves. We're not to seek first to please our spouses or our children or our bosses or anyone. We're not to be spouse-centered, child-centered, boss-centered, but Christ-centered. It's all about walking in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to Him. So let us consider how we can use the life God has given us for Christ. Let us consider how we can use the life that God has given us for Christ. This shouldn't be an afterthought, and this should matter greatly to us. This new life in in Christ that is ours isn't for us to do as we please. And this should cause us to evaluate our actions and our motives. Are we motivated by success, recognition, fame, the approval of others, or or something else? Are we deceiving ourselves into thinking we're living for Christ, when in actuality we're living for ourselves under the facade of living for Christ? We need to be all about Christ, all for Christ, and all in with Christ. Charles Thomas Studd, better known as C.T. Studd, who served as a British missionary to China, penned a famous poem that I believe punctuates this point clearly. Listen listen as I, I read a portion of it. Only one life, a few brief years, each with its burdens, hopes, and fears, each with its clays I must fulfill, living for self or in his will. Only one life, twill soon be past, only what's done, for Christ will last. When this bright world would tempt me sore, when Satan would a victory score, when self would seek to have its way, then help me, Lord, with joy to say, only one life, twill soon be past, only what's done for Christ will last. Give me, Father, a purpose deep, in joy or sorrow thy word to keep, faithful and true whatever the strife, pleasing thee in my daily life. Only one life, Twill soon be past, only what's done for Christ will last. Oh, let my love with fervor burn, and from the world now let me turn, living for thee and thee alone, bringing thee pleasure on thy throne. Only one life, twill soon be past, only what's done for Christ will last. Only one life, yes, only one, now let me say, thy will be done. 
And when at last I'll hear the call, I know I'll say, "Twas worth it all." Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. The question is, who are you trying to please? Who are you trying to please? Next, Paul talks about bearing fruit. He talks about bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. Bearing fruit in every good work is the result of the inner work of God that's manifested outwardly. You've heard it before. Fruits come from roots. Roots enable us to live the Christian life. We understand that we're justified by faith alone, but the faith that justifies is never alone. John Piper says the faith that alone justifies is never alone, but always yields transforming fruit. We're taught in James that faith without works is dead. James is teaching that works don't save us, but they give evidence to our faith. Again, works don't save us, but if faith doesn't work itself out through love and good deeds, then there's no faith at all. That's what James is talking about. Paul would say, "We're not saved by good works. We're saved by grace, for or unto good works." Jesus says, "When we bear fruit, it brings glory to God." John fifteen eight. By this, my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. In that same chapter, John fifteen verses four and five. We're given the picture of the vine and the branches. Jesus says, "Abide in me, and I in you." As a branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine; you are the branches. Whoever abides in me, and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. To put it simply, the work. That we do is the outflow of the life that we have because of Christ. It's by abiding in Jesus Christ that we can produce fruit, and we want to be continually, ongoing, bearing the right kind of fruit in every good work. That tells us that this isn't a one-time fruit bearing, but continual. And the kind of fruit talked about here is one that is good, right, and true. One that is good, right, and true in every respect. It needs to be the kind of fruit that's salt and light to the world. It needs to be the kind of fruit that's shined before others. Let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Matthew five sixteen. Are we bearing good, right, true fruit in every good work? Are there areas in our life that need cultivation, that need specific attention? Are there areas in our life that have remained fruitless for far too long? Abide in Christ, remain connected to the source of growth, and you'll bear much fruit. Blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord, whose trust is the Lord. He is like a tree planted by water that sends out its roots by the stream and does not fear when heat comes, for its leaves remain green, and is not anxious in the year of drought, for it does not cease to bear fruit. Jeremiah seventeen seven and eight. We need not only continually to bear fruit, but also continually increase in the knowledge of God. We can't remain as we are, and we shouldn't be content with where we're at. It's been rightly said: saved people know God. Saved people know God, but saved people aren't content with what they know about God. And we see this evident in Paul's life. Paul, when he wrote the letter to the Philippians, was already well into his Christian life, about thirty years in. And he says he counts he counted everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus. 
He says in verse 10 of chapter 3, he says that he may know Christ and the power of his resurrection. This is after 30 years of already living for Christ. Knowing Christ was of surpassing worth to Paul. Now can we say with Paul, however many years we are into our walk with Christ, that we want to know him more and that knowing him is of infinite worth to us. 1 Peter 2.2 2, Like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation. We need to grow up into salvation. Spiritual growth can occur apart from the knowledge of God. And this is not necessarily talking about learning more things about God and Christ, but talking about growing in spiritual depth in the things that we already know. That means a deeper love for God's word, greater obedience, increased faith, stronger doctrinal convictions, magnified love for others. As you increase in understanding understanding God's purposes for the universe and understanding how God's purposes for the universe are being accomplished through Christ, it will translate into understanding how to live a life that's fully pleasing to him. And just like a worthy walk is a lifetime pursuit, so is increasing in the knowledge of God. We'll never exhaust the depths of his word. However, the deeper the roots as we increase in the knowledge of God, the sweeter our fruits will be. One thing I love about the Bible is that I can spend a whole lifetime studying it and always be learning something new. I'm constantly amazed by the things that I learned as I opened up God's Word. And I became a Christian in college. And after I graduated, I moved back home and I lived at home for a period of time. My parents, as some of you may know, aren't believers. And my mom would see me reading the Bible. She would, she would see me reading a book. She'd, be, she'd ask me, what are you reading? And I'd tell her the Bible. And she would tell me that I was wasting my time, that there were countless other books that I could be reading so that I can gain knowledge, so that I can get smarter, not in the things of God, but in the worldly things. And each time she saw me reading, she would see that it was the exact same book. It was the Bible. One day, she asked me, aren't you done with that book by now? I responded with, you know, the day I grasp this entire book is the day I'll stop reading it. And to this day, she is well aware that I'm still reading the same book. Spurgeon said, had this to say about scripture over a period of time. Nobody ever outgrows scripture. The book widens and deepens with our years. God is pleased when we're growing in the knowledge of him. And the more we know his character and his ways, what he expects, the more we're able to bring our lives into conformity with what pleases him. And as we obey God's will and are walking worthy of it, we bear fruit in every good work and increase in the knowledge of God. That means that we grow to know him more and more, better and better. Knowledge of God's will energizes our obedience and our obedience deepens our understanding and gives us knowledge of him that's there's a blessed cycle to the knowledge of god let me put it this way living for his pleasure increases our capacity to know him which then in turn increases our capacity to obey which leads to a more intimate knowledge of who he is At this point, you, may be, you might be thinking to yourself, I don't know if I can do all of this. I can sprint, but I don't know if I have the strength and power needed for a marathon. And you'd be right, because the Christian life isn't a walk in the park. Everything that we've talked about isn't easy and doesn't come naturally. Walking in a manner worthy of the Lord fully pleasing him, 
bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. It sounds simple, but it takes a lifetime of training. Great power is needed to run the race. One we don't have enough of on our own, and one that seems to run out all too quickly. And Paul knows this. That's why he prays for what he prays next. That leads us to the third necessity in the life of a believer reliance on God's power. Reliance on God's power, which is where we'll pick up next time, Lord willing. So in Colossians chapter 1, 9 through 14, we've considered, we've looked at the first two necessities of a believer's life as brought out by Paul's prayer for the Colossian saints the knowledge of God's will and living to please Christ. Paul's prayer is our prayer. We need to pray this prayer not only for ourselves but for others, that God may fill us with the knowledge of his will so that we can live lives worthy of the gospel that we've received. This knowledge, as we've we've learned, is centered on the powerful redemptive work of God through his beloved son, Jesus Christ. God's will, we learned, is both knowable and walkable. Knowable in his word, walkable by obedience. We need to be filled up in order to be fully pleasing. Filled up with the knowledge of God to be fully pleasing to Christ. And as believers in Christ, we're richly supplied with all that we need to live for him. As believers in Christ, the Holy Spirit gives us wisdom and understanding to rightly interpret and apply scripture. We have all we need to grow God's way day by day. This should lead us to greater and higher worship. Steve Lawson, he says this, a profound understanding of God inevitably leads to towering worship. An awesome vision of God enlarges our hearts to greater love for him and encourages the development of our souls to soar to the heights of heaven. A transcendent view of the character of God prompts lives to pursue what is pleasing to him. Just as a healthy root system is vital for a mighty oak tree to grow, the roots of our knowledge of God must be deep and solid. The knowledge of God is simply that pivotal in the life of the church and every believer. So little by little, step by step, may we make it our increasing aim to know God's will and to walk in it. Strive to be men and women of the word. Continually remind yourself that not my will be done, but yours, but God's will be done. May we not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of our mind so that we may prove what the will of God is that which is good, acceptable, and perfect, Romans 12.2. May we walk, may we walk, not as self-sufficient, but as God-dependent. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of, Lord, of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him, Colossians 3.17. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, Colossians 3.23. Let us join in with Paul saying, we make it our aim to please Christ. We make it our aim to please Christ. 2 Corinthians 5 verse 9. We may stumble and we may fail, but Christ is with us the entire time. He holds us fast. He'll get us to the finish line. We'll reach our destination. Let us run with endurance the race that's set before us looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. When I fear my faith will fail, when the tempter would prevail, Christ will hold me fast. I could never keep my hold through life's fearful path, for my love is often cold. He must hold me fast. For my Savior loves me so, he will hold me fast. May God help us grow his way day by day. Let's pray. Father God, we give thanks for your word. You are God, and we are but your creatures. You are infinite, and we are but finite. 
As Paul says, Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are your judgments and how unscrutable your ways. Father, we ask that you would fill us with the knowledge of your will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. Although we can't fully comprehend you, we're thankful that we can understand and know you as you've revealed yourself in your word. Help us to have a greedy hunger for you and for your word. Help us to delight in your commandments and to be governed by them. As we go out and live this week, may your sufficient word direct our every step as we seek to live for you, to do your will, and to walk worthy of your ways. In Christ's name I pray, amen.